Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 17 of The Lawyerist Podcast, a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to the show in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy the show, we'd really appreciate it if you take a second and give us a rating in iTunes. So first, we have a new sponsor. William Howard Taft University offers an MBA program with a concentration in professional practice management. To learn more, go to taft.edu slash mba.htm. I'll say more about the program after my interview with Ken White. And our second sponsor for today's podcast is Ruby Receptionists. Sign up for a free trial at callruby.com slash lawyerist, and Ruby will answer your phones for free for two weeks. If you decide to become a customer, Ruby will waive the setup fee. All right, Sam. So you were in Kansas City this week participating in a conference about legal hacking. Does that mean you're a hacker now? Uh, I like to think I've always been a hacker, but um, the conference was actually a conference on law schools, technology, and access to justice, and uh, legal hacking definitely played a part in it. Okay, so what's legal hacking? Um, Is this as opposed to illegal hacking? <laughs> no, uh, I would say legal hacking is the idea that there there exist legal problems that we can solve creatively using technology and cleverness. That doesn't mean anything to me. No, uh, it doesn't. But um, in the same way that some of the earliest, you know, hackers were phone freakers, right? They were they were using a Captain Crunch whistle to get free long distance phone calls. Uh, it's not just about technology. Sometimes it's about finding clever workarounds for traditional things. So I'll give a couple of examples. Uh, David Colarusso at the Massachusetts Public Defender's Office is somebody I met while I was at the conference and just really impressed by his creative approaches to problem solving. And he's also a software developer, so he can be more creative than usual. But I think this illustrates sort of the two levels of legal hacking, at least involving technology. One is uh, it would take them hours to do the paperwork on their files, right? This is lawyers spending lots of time not helping anyone, just shuffling paper. And so David decided to sit down and automate that process. And just by setting up some simple document automation, he saved hours of every public defender's time, which is many more clients that they can help. So that was pretty simple stuff, right? It's a simple problem with a simple but probably time-consuming, maybe a little bit complicated solution that somebody needs to put in the time on. The second type of legal hacking, and this is kind of even a simple example of this, are big complicated problems that maybe people don't even realize yet. So uh, one, of the, one of the other things David did for the Massachusetts Public Defender I just posted on Lawyerist, which was uh, they realized that people who were coming to their website were not getting the help they needed because you know, the legal jargon that we use to organize our websites doesn't help normal people. And so he built a tool to do simple question and answer on a lawyer's website, which is actually simple, but really sophisticated and has a lot of possibility. And 
I'm kind of in awe of it and amazed by it. And you can do cool things. It's called Q&A. And uh, you could put it on your own website, for example, and direct people to sections of your website. Uh, You can do some basic form automation. You could automate your intake through your website. Or you could just give basic legal advice uh, to people who have questions if that's the sort of thing that you think is a good idea. So um, it's kind of a, you know, legal hacking can do lots and lots of different things. Um, But the idea is just that we should be more creative and really employ technology to solve some of our legal problems. So a couple of weeks ago, you and I were in Chicago for ABA Tech Show, which I know is where you got the invite to this conference. But that conference was full of legal technology entrepreneurs trying to solve legal problems using technology. How how is this a different thing than that? Um, it's not really okay. I think those are all those are all types. I, I mean, I think the difference would be that. Uh, most legal hackers are more in the open source world. Um, many of them are in academia, which this was definitely a an academic conference predominantly. Most of the people there were either in academia or close to it, um, apart from me and a couple of other people. So, so the um, difference is these people aren't trying to make money off of things, right? I think it's uh, public public interest hacking. So then, who's going to pay for it? Uh, in some cases, nobody needs to. Uh, a lot of these problems are not problems that uh, there might not be a business model around solving them, but they might still really need to get solved. Okay. Are you, are you going to keep legal hacking? Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that I've ever hacked le- legally hacked. Hacked legally? Well, hacked the law. To the extent I've hacked, I hope it's been legal. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's a really interesting movement. And I'm really, and by movement, I mean that. These legal hacker groups are started out in Boston and New York, and they're spreading to D.C. and internationally. And you know, pr- as I said before, primarily through academia. I mean, I like to think that sort some kind of hacking is what we've been doing at Lawyerist all along, right? It's experimenting with your own practice to try and figure out how to do a better job of it, which really is the same thing. So, so you think this is the front end of a real thing? I think it could be the front end of a real thing. I I think it is somewhat, it's weird to go from the world of business, um, uh, you know, and law practice, real law practice to the world of academia where um, there's a lot of talking and planning and committees and things. And I can't decide whether or not. That sounds very unhacker-like to me. (laughs) Well, it is. And that's one of the things is, you know, I feel like the whole point of hacking is you see a problem and you start hacking around until you solve it. Uh, you don't you don't talk about it a lot. You just do. I mean, sure, you get together with other people who are fixing things and doing things, but you don't necessarily do a ton of planning. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I have no idea if this is the beginning of something real and meaningful and momentous or not. Um, you know, uh, hackers built Linux and and Linux is not uh, something that powers all of our desktop computers, although kind of, um, it powers the internet. So, you know, they might not uh, be able to make an enormous difference in the day-to-day practice of practicing lawyers, but I could be wrong about that. But I think there's a really good chance that uh, some of the civic projects that they're undertaking could, you know, really uh, pay off. Like, you know, one of the projects that somebody, some people are working on is the idea is to have sort of a civic ID so that instead of applying for things like a zoning permit or um, a liquor license or 
uh, you know, a building permit variance or something like that. You just click a button and it checks on who you are. Uh, it checks out the public information about you. And if it can, it gives you a thumbs up or a thumbs down without all of that people interacting with it and filling out forms and triplicate and all that kind of business. So there's a potential for it to make a huge difference, but I, I wonder if that potential isn't more on the infrastructure side than on the you know, private solo and small firm lawyer side. But but maybe as a, one of the D.C. legal hackers said, maybe I just haven't seen enough of it yet. OK, so I'm intrigued, but I'm super unconvinced. Can we I, can we do a future podcast about legal hacking so I can understand what this actually is and if it's legit? Yeah, let's invite some some legal hackers on our podcast and uh, talk to them about what they're doing and find out more. And and in fact, I think we've got uh, a little bit of that coming up fairly soon. So. Perfect. So uh, today, let's transition. I'm interviewing Ken White, who is one of the primary personalities behind the blog PopeHat.com and uh, really just a, a lawyer whose practice I have admired and been interested in. He's a First Amendment lawyer. He uh, is one of the first people to step in and defend bloggers who are threatened with defamation lawsuits and trademark things and all that kind of stuff. And so I was really excited to sit down and find out how he built his practice, where it came from, and how he got to the point he is today. So let's hear it. Hi, I'm Sam Glover here with Ken White, our podcast guest for today. Good morning, Sam. Ken, I, I sort of sprung this on you. I forgot to tell you this in advance, but I always like to let my guests introduce themselves. So would you give us your elevator speech if you have one or, or just tell us who you are in, in a few sentences? Sure. Uh, I'm Ken White. I'm an attorney in Los Angeles at a uh, boutique firm, uh, Brown, White & Osborne. We do... Uh, both uh, criminal defense and civil litigation. And in my spare time, I blog on legal issues at a blog called Popat. And you may, maybe you're better known for Popat, I suppose, by the general public at least. I, I suppose that's true. Uh, uh, although, who knows? There, there are times it seems like uh, if I'm in the paper for a case, I'm better known for that. And other times I run into people who know the blog. You know, you, though, Popat has become uh, something that. It, I mean, TechDirt regularly picks you up. Boing Boing regularly picks you up. Um, other websites, Reddit is always all over your stuff. Um, how, that that level of sort of notoriety for your blogging is pretty amazing. Well, it's it's fun. It's fun knowing that there's an audience uh, when you're writing. When I started blogging, it was really more an exercise in, in constant writing, which I think is good for lawyers to do, and just more of a sort of outlet for creativity. But as the years have gone by, it is fun to have more interaction with other people and more people commenting on what you write and uh, getting picked up and things like that. Yeah, I bet. Um, you've never, I don't, I don't think you've ever revealed the secret of the background of the name. You've always just said it was a dumb joke that nobody would get. Is that right? Oh, it's an inside joke among friends. There was a, a friend who uh, could, would make little origami pope hats. And uh, when he was wearing one, he, he seemed to be completely undefeatable in poker. And <laughs> we thought that the, the, the pope hat was sort of a, a reference to uh, uh, the a strange sense of infallibility, which is something that bloggers generally share. <laughs> oh, I like that. Uh, well, now I know the secret. That's awesome. And now I'm going to have to learn how to go make origami pope hats. 
Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think it works. Of course, mine don't turn out looking very good. <laughs> right. Now, uh, how long have you been practicing law? It's 20 years now. Um, I was admitted to the bar in 94 in California. I was a, a law clerk then and really started practicing as a federal prosecutor in 95. And so, it's, I'm sorry, I, my math skills just failed me. How long, bef- how long between law school and becoming a federal prosecutor? Just a year. I started out with a uh, judicial clerkship uh, for Central District of California, uh, late Judge Richard Gadboy, a great man. And then at the end of that, I got a job at the U.S. Attorney's Office. In California? Yes, in Los Angeles. Uh, As they said, at that point, I came extremely cheap, which is probably why they hired me. (laughs) Right. So how long did you do that work for? It was about six years uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Los Angeles. So I, I got to go all the way from doing the rookie cases up to eventually being in the public corruption and government fraud section, which did a variety of interesting cases involving fraud on the government. Oh, interesting. Um, and, and then it, did you go straight from there to starting your current firm? No, I spent some time at some large firms, which I think was a good experience to sort of get a sense of the the legal community. So I spent some time at Paul Hastings uh, a few years, and then a few years at Shepard Mullen. And it was from Shepard Mullen in 2005 that my partner and I started up our firm. At that point, we were only two lawyers and rented desks and everything in boxes and phones that weren't very reliable. And uh you know, since then, we've been as big as 20 lawyers. Uh, it kind of varies over time. Right now, we're around 13 or 14. Okay. So I've always said that there's kind of a, a real material difference between somebody who goes into solo practice right out of law school or what, what I did, which is three years out of law school, and somebody who goes out after about 10 years when you're, you know, you're a real lawyer, you know what you're doing. Um, you have probably a book of business or at least a reputation to build on. Um, so you were, that's the end you were doing it from. It sounds like that was right about 10 years in practice. It was, although it was not the sort of thing where I had a book of business and being a relatively young lawyer at mega firms, there was very little prospect of my getting one. Uh, you know, one of the reasons we started a small firm was the increasing difficulty, particularly in some practice areas, of developing business at big firms. I mean, we do a large part of what we do is criminal defense, um, mostly white collar, but also non white collar. And the larger firms with their economic model, the um, makes it increasingly difficult to represent individuals unless they are the very rare mega rich individuals. Uh, not many people can afford the eight hundred dollars an hour or the two hundred thousand dollar retainer fee or or anything right. like that. And in addition, um, representing individuals and small companies becomes increasingly difficult at big firms, just as there are more and more conflict issues. You know, the bigger the firm, the the larger the array of entities uh, they've represented that you might be adverse to. So you kind of wanted to get out while you still had clients you could represent. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We wanted to be able to be somewhat flexible on rates, which we are. We wanted to be able to 
if we wanted to sue a bank, we wanted to be able to sue a bank, uh, which we do, or a law firm or whatever, and we wanted to be able to take whatever case uh, that we wanted to take. So, you know, we'd like to tell the story of uh, one of my partners, Al Jaron, who came to us uh, from in-house at Hughes Electronics. And our thought was, this is great. We're going to get all these sophisticated internal investigations at Hughes <laughs> and all these high-profile cases. And the first two cases Al brings in are so the deadly weapon, both with butcher knives. Uh, and the thing is, you could never in a million years represent someone for assault with a deadly weapon at a mega firm, unless maybe it was the very real pro bono. Right. But those were two good cases. Al got both of them dismissed and did a great job for them, and, and we were the right platform for that. I mean, what was the, when you when you first went solo, solo, I guess not solo, but duo, uh, what was the plan? What what kind of a law firm were you trying to have? And were you were you hoping to get bigger at the time? Or what was the goal? We were. I don't know if, if at first we imagined growing as big as 20 lawyers or multiple offices, but uh, we always wanted to do the types of work that we enjoyed doing that we were good at without the large firm bureaucracy or limitations and with uh, uh, fee flexibility and lifestyle flexibility. And what was the kind of work that that was for you? For, for me, you know, the core of it uh, was always federal criminal defense based on my background uh, as a federal prosecutor, and that's where I probably feel most at home. But expanding out from there to state criminal defense as well and to all sorts of uh, business litigation, you know, there's some areas we stay around, away from, uh, family law, things like that. But generally, you know, we're, we're closer to generalists than uh, in the litigation field. Mm-hmm. So, and we, we find generally, if you're, once you get the skills of a trial lawyer and you're very comfortable in court and very comfortable writing, uh, you know, I, I think specialization in litigation can be a little bit overrated. So I'm sorry to say that, I, you know, I, I know who you are not because of your criminal defense work, but because of... Um, the work that you've done defending uh, bloggers who are threatened with censorious douchebaggery. And (laughs) (laughs) which is, I don't know if you coined that term, but I love that term. But uh, how did that come to be? When did you start? Yeah, I mean, it seems like that's pretty much your pro bono work. um, And you do a fair amount of it and you do it at a very high profile. But how did that come about? And how did the First Amendment thing come about in general, I guess? I've always been really interested in First Amendment issues. I mean, in college, I wrote my uh, honors thesis on on hate speech laws and, and the First Amendment. And uh, in law school, I spent a lot of time on it. But you know, most people, it's very difficult to, to build really a First Amendment practice. Uh, and I, I was just steadily making it more and more a topic of writing. And you know, when I write, I tend to do some research, so I was doing more and more research into different areas of First Amendment law, into defamation law, and all that sort of thing, and I realized that I could probably be of help in uh, some cases. So, you know, I I began sparingly to offer help to people, and uh, occasionally giving it anywhere from starting with really uh, responding to mean letters with mean letters, up to eventually appearing for people in court. And um, it's, it's been great experience in terms of um, learning more uh, about the First Amendment litigation, whether it's you know defamation defense or anything else, and also just getting more exposure about doing that. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You, you offer the help to people, more people come, so you get more exposure to more of the issues and uh, more of the cases. Do you make any money off of your First Amendment practice, or is that all pro bono? 
over the years, uh, people have started coming to me because they've heard of me through Popat or through my pro bono stuff. And sometimes they come to me in First Amendment cases or related cases and hire me. So to that extent, I make money uh, on those cases. Uh, but, you know, I would say probably the pro bono hours I've done outweigh those hours. Yeah. And what's the rest of your time spent now? Or do you still do mostly federal criminal defense or is it more of a sort of spread out? It varies, you know, uh, particularly with, with criminal work. It, you know, you'll have times where you're hugely swamped because you're preparing for trial with criminal work and then long stretches of nothing. Uh, so I, I would say over the years, it's around 40% civil, 40% criminal, 20% firm administration in the last few years. How much firm administration do you have to do when it's, when it's your firm of the size that yours is? Actually, uh, to keep it running uh, is surprisingly a lot. I mean, my managing partner puts in even more time than that. But uh, to keep things running smoothly and have the type of shop we want, uh, there's always work to be done to to train, to supervise, to uh, put out fires, uh, to you know act. I act as the general counsel of the firm, meaning that I answer all the ethical questions and all the sort of meta issues and things like that. So it's it's a fair amount of work. So you're also the ethics partner. Exactly. <laughs> so that is, I guess, the overview of what you do. I, how do you, if I wanted to have your practice, because that's one of the reasons I'm interested in talking to you is I think you have um, just a really cool practice, but obviously I'm, I'm the coolness aspect is more what I know, the first amendment stuff. And um, so I'm, uh, that's, that's sort of a two part question. One, I mean, how does somebody start a firm and get to the point where you're able to grow uh, to, you know, 13, 14, 20 lawyers? if that's the goal and, but B maybe on the other side is if somebody wanted to become, uh, you know, a pro bono lawyer in a, in a practice area like you have, you know, how, how would they make that a successful side hobby without screwing things up all the time? Well, sure. I mean, it's really too, uh, I mean, I like, I'm, I, I asked that because like, I'm, I love the idea of doing it. I, I love the First Amendment rules and, and law, but I feel like if I started taking those cases, I'd probably just screw them up and it wouldn't be, do anybody any good. Well, yeah, actually, <laughs> yeah, I, I think the First Amendment stuff is, is not rocket science and it's just a matter of spending time on it over time that you know any, any good lawyer can become good at it. In terms of starting a firm, um, it's it's I think really different depending on the region, just with the the cost of living and the legal markets and and what people charge. It's really different with different practice areas. You know, I wouldn't speculate on what it's like to open a, a family law practice or you know a primarily uh, uh, insurance defense practice or something like that. But you know, if you want to be sort of like a boutique type mode, I, I think you want to be very credible in the area where you go where you're going into. So I think you want to have established yourself as, you know, a trial lawyer, someone who tries cases, or someone with a, a history of success in on the writing side, you know, appellate work or motion work and that sort of thing. And, you know, you want to have basically a credible product to sell. And then I, I think really the people who are successful are often ones who thought carefully about the model before they start. So they know what they want to do and they you know, know what types of cases they want to pursue. And, um, you know, it's, it's harder if you just sort of go whatever comes in and, and you're not sure what you're going to try to bring in, then it can be a little more challenging. You started your firm uh, about 10 years ago. So 
that was that was before there was a swarm of social media gurus telling everybody that Twitter was the way to get rich. So how did you build your business? I mean, how did you bring in clients? A few ways. First of all, it's always, I think the, the key way is always doing a great job and delighting your existing clients, uh, which is all about taking them seriously, being very responsive when they try to contact you, and uh, communicating a lot. Okay, uh, but here, here's I, the thing. So we always say that. Um, experienced lawyers always say that first you have to take care of the clients you have, and then the younger lawyers say, but how do I get the clients in the first place? Sure, that's not easy. How, how do the first ones come in the door? But in the long term, what I'm saying is oh, the, yeah. uh, the, the clients are going to keep coming in uh, because you do well for the clients you have now. Um, those people are going to continue to bring you work. They're going to tell their friends about you. Uh, you're going to get the reputation, and you're going to get the referrals that way. The other way is really cultivating relationships. Um, I think too many people call it client development, and I think it's just building relationships with people, and you know they know what you do, and it's not that you tell them every time you meet them that, hey, you know, I do this type of work, you should think of me. It's just that, you know, you, you uh, impress people as someone who's competent and honest, and they know the areas that you're in, and they think about you. Um, a lot of professional associations are important. Uh, a lot of the times, the firms or government entities you worked for are going to be a big source. Uh, assistant U.S. attorneys in particular tend to have sort of a, a network uh, and tend to refer a lot of cases uh, to each other. And part of that is the nature of, of some of the cases we do. You know, if some company's being investigated, you're always going to need someone for the company and so on for the CEO and so on for the CFO and so on. So there's often some work to be thrown off there. But you know, generally, you're just going to want people to know that you're good, know what you do, and know that if they refer a client to you or, you know, a client's brother-in-law who just got arrested or whatever, that they can do so with confidence and the, and the person's not going to come back to you and say, you know, why did you refer me to that idiot? Do you remember the first client you got after you started your firm? I, you know, actually, I think the first client I got was one who could manage to pay the uh, rather high rates of one of my prior firms. But, mm. you know, no, I, I honestly don't even remember the first one here. I only know that it became much easier once I was on my own and uh, once I could be flexible with rates and once, you know, I could be a lot more flexible in terms of types of cases. And do you, do you remember um, when you guys started it, did you have uh, uh, sort of a, the ability to float for months or did you need to make money right off the bat and, and it had to work out or? We took a few clients with us, uh, you know, a stable group of okay. existing cases that were enough to have us work to do for a few months. But then, you know, we, we did have to uh, make an effort uh, to bring in stuff. And that was all about, you know, just making contact with all the people we knew and, uh, you know, taking people to lunch, uh, getting together at bar events, things like that, so that they knew we were out there and what type of work uh, we were doing. And, uh, you know, for a lot of people um, these days, it might be writing on subjects as a, as a, 
good way to do it. I mean, that's for me. That's probably the um, uh, the second biggest way of getting clients after you know pleasing the existing ones. Uh, everyone might have sort of different skills or. Um, you know, different ways of business generation that works best for them. You know, my partner is very good at sort of the classic business development of having a wide network of friends and socializing and things like that. You know, I'm more of a loner, so I'm much better at doing it through writing and commentary and, and making contacts that way. And do you don't mean, do you mean POPAT or do you mean, do you do other writing? Sure, I do. I do mean Popat. I mean, it's it's not that you know when I write a post with a lot of obscenities about it, people are calling <laughs> me up, up immediately to represent them in a securities fraud case. But by writing, I've slowly developed relationships with other lawyers and legal bloggers and things like that over the years. And those people get to know me, they get to trust me, and then they think of me when they have something in you know Los Angeles, and so I get a call that way, or you know people read my writing and they come up with a case that wanders into a practice area they know I do so they uh call me for that it's about establishing uh trust yeah you're it's more of the uh the networking aspect of writing and blogging not the uh not you're not trying to get search engines to you know deliver clients to your site and who will of course call you in in the as as far as the social media gurus are concerned, right? You're, well, you know, you're I don't want to put that in completely. I, I, I think that it depends. I, I think that there are practices out there where search engine hits uh, and, you know, the SEO stuff might be important, uh, but it, it's probably uh, different types of practices at different price points that rely more on volume. Oh, absolutely. But But for you, it's been more the way to build a way to build relationships and, and a reputation. Exactly. Uh, generally, the people who are going to hire me probably, uh, I'd say at least 90% of the clients aren't going to hire me because of a search engine hit. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if they're a, if there's someone being, facing a corruption charge, uh, they're not going to do it by Google. They're going to do it by recommendations, mm-hmm. and you know, which is just as well because I always tell people they shouldn't choose lawyers through Google anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's it's easy to look awesome online. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and so, when when you guys made the decision to grow, uh, was it an easy decision or was it uh, was it a hard decision to grow? And how did it happen? Well, whenever we grew, it was because we, you know, had work and someone good was out there that we could get. Uh, and so, either you know, bringing on a partner who we partners who we knew from you know, other former federal prosecutors, or you know, seeing somebody who was a good litigator uh, and on the other side and making them an offer down the road, or you know, needing associates and looking around for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always been either opportunity based or, or need based. We haven't sort of ever thought, you know, we'd like to grow the firm ten percent this year, so let's hire one person. It's always been in response to the amount of work around, or hey, this person would be a good fit. And so it's you, one of the things that I struggled with was trying to figure out who to hire and when to hire and how to hire. Um, but I guess maybe that makes a lot more of a difference too when you are very small and you don't have a lot of clearance for uh, in the cash flow. Um, I suppose as you grow, it becomes a simpler decision. It is. I mean, if, if you're hiring because. You know, we have these four big civil litigations going, and we need an associate to do some of the work. Then that's an easier decision than 
you know, than than just sort of a spreadsheet. So I, you know, I predict we'll have a ten percent rise in hours this year, or something <laughs> like that. Right. And do you do you mostly bill by the hour? Just out of curiosity. Um, mostly in the sense of over fifty percent. Yes, uh, we do very occasional contingency stuff, and sometimes we do. Uh, blended contingency and hourly and sometimes we do flat fees so that's part of the flexibility i mean the 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 flat fees tend to be for smaller criminal cases and things like that okay uh say a dui or something uh and and some people just prefer the managed risk of a flat fee over uh over hourly but in general you're not jumping on the alternative fees bandwagon well, I, I think it's good if you, if, you, if you want to bring in cases these days, I think you have to be somewhat flexible and be aware of what your competition is. But I'm not you know, wholeheartedly into any alternatives now. Yeah. So I, I think of you as a successful lawyer. Do you think of yourself as a successful lawyer? I've been very fortunate. And that's largely dealing, you know, working with really good people and, uh, you know, being at the right place at the right time. And, uh, yeah, I, I think of myself as successful at this point. I'm always, you know... I, I always have the terror that next month it's all going to go bad, uh, but I think that's fairly healthy to, to keep hungry. So that doesn't go away? No, it never does, as far as I can tell. Even, even when you grow and smooth... Well, I assume being a bigger firm smooths out the bumps, though. I mean, that was the roller coaster of being a very small firm uh, was just um, always kind of a terrifying thing. I would think so, and particularly if... Um, you know, if you're not sure where the work's going to be coming from, uh, yeah, having having a a slight uh, pool of people bringing in cases is always helpful, uh, and we do find that it ebbs and flows over the years. You know, there are times that are really really good, and there are times that are tighter, uh, and and I think that's always going to be the case. But you know, we figure. Uh, a big chunk of the time we've been open was during the recession, and we got through it. So that seems to bode well. Okay, so one of the first things I did when I started thinking about going solo was I talked to every small business owner I could, because what I really wanted to know is when do I have to stop worrying about that next paycheck? Um, and it, the answer, it turns out, is kind of never, but kind of, you know, when you have three or six months in the bank and you can actually weather a couple of storms. Do you know how? Do you remember how long that took for you? before you got to the point where you weren't panicking about every month about where your next business was coming from and you didn't feel like you were just riding the coaster? Well, again, we were we were somewhat lucky in that when we went out, we had a few existing cases that were, were steady uh, that wouldn't make us rich, but that would keep the doors open. And then it was just a matter of realizing that in addition to doing the hard work of doing a great job for your current clients, you always have to invest some time in thinking about the future. So um, what I think, some of, one of the reasons that you get these big feast or famine roller coasters is it's very easy when you're really busy and doing really well and putting in a, getting paid for a lot of hours to forget that, you know, this case can settle. And then if I haven't been doing the groundwork for something in the future, there's going to be nothing there. So it's it's all about putting in the time and to develop cases during the boom times as well as the lean times. How much of your time do you spend on on your? I, I think I asked this already in a different way, but how much time do you spend on your your actual practice where you make money versus the pro bono work that you do? It really varies. I mean, I probably do a few hours a week of just people writing to me to ask things about 
you know, not representing them, but just asking questions or asking for pointers to other people or things like that. Uh, and then it, depending on the case, you know, when I, when I was doing the, the Ninth Circuit appeal for the case where mm-hmm. I was a pro bono attorney, you know, that was, what, 40 or 50 hours okay. in a month, uh, but other months it might be only two or three on, on all the, the, the matters I have, uh, if there aren't many at a particular time. And how much time do you spend writing for Popat? Because well, I, you, you write, you write some long, fairly detailed posts, and I think you must have been a journalist at some point because you also call people up and get quotes, and so how that seems like it must take a while. Uh, it can, yeah, and and that really varies a lot too. You know, um, when I'm in a good mood and everything's going great, I tend to write more, and when I'm in a bad mood and and busy and stressed, I I tend to write less. I'm always, you know, I, I feel best about it when I'm doing, you know, say three to four posts a week. And depending on the post, I might, it might be something I dash out in 15 minutes or it might be something I spend 10 hours on, depending on the complexity of it. Uh, and usually I, I do those things not uh, so much by sitting at my desk during the day, but by, you know, thinking about it when I'm driving or in the shower or whatever. And, you know, in the evenings in my downtime, you know, uh, hanging out with my wife while she watches TV or reads and I'm doing, you know, the background research or, you know, outlining it or whatever like that. So mm-hmm. trying to fit it into the extra moments uh, in the day. And then, you know, kind of writing it in my head and then when the mood strikes me, sitting down to do the work of, of churning it out. Uh, it, it's all, you know, I've always wanted to write a book and people keep telling me that, all the writers say you just have to make yourself sit down and do it, you know, two hours a day at some point. And I've never been able to discipline myself for that. Uh, maybe because the horizon is too far off, but the, the, you know, short form, uh, compared to a book long form compared to some bloggers, it seems to be the, the sweet spot for me where I can see this, as, uh, you know, this is something I want to write about. I see how I can, you know, uh, frame a whole post around the one joke I got or, you know, make the one point I want mm-hmm. or, you know, make the, this one approach someone else hasn't taken and that's kind of the, the impetus for it and then do it. Can you find a new angle on, on the, the pony joke, for example? Well, sure. Or, you know, if, <laughs> I, I'm usually disinclined if 20 people have written about something and I don't see any interesting thing to say about it that hasn't been said better. I, I, I don't tend to, to write it. Um, one thing about the people who blog for business development, you know, who do firm blogs and things like that. I'm not a big fan of what I think too many of the legal marketers push, which is just putting stuff up there to put stuff up there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if you're writing stuff that doesn't really have a voice and that's kind of non-substantive and banal, that uh, maybe it helps you if you're someone who has a practice that's aided by search engine results. It helps you, but I don't think it gets anyone, you know, it doesn't forge relationships with other lawyers or other bloggers, and it doesn't inspire trust if it's just something that, you know, visibly is just something you churned out so that you could say you wrote 500 words about a case. No, I've always said you shouldn't write a blog that you wouldn't want to read. Well, exactly. I think that's a great way to put it. So has it ever been a problem that, I mean, speaking of voices, Popat has three or five 
different yeah, writers? Yeah, well, it depends on how you count. I mean, we have some people who haven't written in a very long time, but you know, could write again any day. I would say three of us or four of us are the ones who write most often. Me, Patrick, David, and Clark. And you all have very different voices on the site. Has it ever been a problem, do you think? Apart from the fact that uh, you and, don't you and, is it you and Patrick that share the Twitter account and get, nobody knows who's talking when? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't go as far as to say it's a pr- problem. Now and then we joke, you know, what what crowd of crazy people did you get going after us today? Right. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's ever been a problem. We have, uh, among the bloggers, we have various uh, political and philosophical disagreements, but, you know, we remain, we remain people with uh, a great deal of respect for each other and respect for sort of the format, which is, you know, people coming together to, to write and to discuss things they're interested in. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's never been, uh, you haven't been held responsible for the group view in, in a way. Oh, that sure. I mean, but I, I don't particularly care. Oh. <laughs> and it's easy for me to say, because, you know, here I am 20 years out with an established firm and that sort of thing. And I understand how if you're, you know, a young lawyer at a firm or trying to build your own practice, it's, it's harder to, to say, screw them if they don't like it. Uh, but, I, I mean, I, I do think you have to be ready to take the consequences of what you write, and that's part of your decision about what your voice is going to be. Well, maybe that's, I mean, I've, uh, maybe that's part of what I'm getting at, because, you know, I, I see so many lawyers who try to blog and and even assuming that they have that they're good writers and they can be interesting and that they uh, can can do it in a good way um, still I I keep seeing them that they're so um, timid about it and and Popat is very bold and your writing on it is very bold you swear uh, you crack jokes you make fun of people um, you call out censorious douchebags and other douchebags and um, and that's what makes it so interesting. Um, but I know, I mean, I, I wrote a consumer law blog, I, I guess I still do, um, and I would regularly have that tossed back at me in court. You know, I, it's been cited in briefs uh, in opposition to my client's position before. And so there's sort of a balance, I, I guess, but um, nobody would ever accuse you of having shy opinions about your side of things. Um, <laughs> you're still well balanced. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, I think I think you just have to be ready to take the consequences. I, I'm uh, I've had my stuff thrown back at me uh, in court, <laughs> uh, very dishonestly. You know, from mm-hmm. a uh, a uh, sort of anti-speech litigant who basically quoted me for the exact opposite of what I was saying. <laughs> uh, and I'm not terribly surprised people have, have uh, done that to you, but I think you just, you know, you have to be ready for that consequence. And, you know, I think people think that, gosh, I, I can't write anything that will offend any potential client, but then you're going to wind up writing very little at all. Um, I just have to think that, you know, I have strong opinions about some things. People are going to disagree with me on those things, but I'm aiming for the client who wants a good lawyer and who, you know, uh, thinks strong writing, uh, and opinions that are well defended are a sign of a good lawyer. So yeah, if, if the client is someone who can't abide, uh, the war on drugs being criticized harshly, uh, and they don't want to deal with anyone who has that opinion, then they're not going to come to me. But uh, I'm not sure I'd want that client anyway because they'd probably wind up being a pain in the ass and in other ways. You know, someone who's going to react very badly because you 
express strong opinions um, is someone who's probably going to find a way to react badly to you anyway. I think the trickier problem is for people who are associates at big firms or things like that, where, you know, they have a much more conservative boss, someone who, you know, is maybe not as familiar with internet culture and the idiom and that type of thing, and therefore is uh, a lot more... um, uh, reluctant to be associated with things written online. You know, online, you are the face of your firm. Do, do any of the other uh, employees of your firm have a, a strong online presence at all? Not really, no. But, you know, you say in the face of my firm, and I think that's with a very select audience. Uh, the majority of people who hire me on uh, criminal or civil matters really haven't heard of me through online. Uh, or if they do, it's only they only figure it out after they've hired me as their lawyer. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. So the crowd of people who who hire me because they know me as Popat or or you know is is relatively small and and around a relatively select practice area. Yeah, I suppose that makes a lot of sense too. Well, Ken, thank you so much for being with us today. I really enjoyed learning more about it. And if you aren't all reading Popat, you ought to. It is at popat.com. It is frequently engaging and always strong opinions and sometimes has ponies. (laughs) Sam, thank you for the opportunity. Thanks again to our sponsor, William Howard Taft University. Its MBA program with a first-of-its-kind concentration in professional practice management is designed specifically for newly admitted attorneys facing employment challenges. The MBA PPM program is a distance learning program that does not require classroom or seminar attendance. The faculty consists of business and attorney professionals teaching the skills necessary to manage a successful solo or small legal practice. The curriculum combines a traditional MBA with course materials directly relevant to the practice of law. It's a 36-credit program requiring three semesters of study, and students conclude by presenting a comprehensive business plan. Students may qualify for federally insured student loans for up to 100% of tuition, fees, books, and related costs, as well as an allowance for living expenses. Additionally, students may defer repayment of existing federal student loans while enrolled in the program. Military personnel may be eligible for Veterans Administration and Tuition Assistance Education programs designed specifically for active duty, reserve veterans, or military spouse and family. Students can enter the program in February and August, and the next semester starts August 3rd. The first 10 qualified enrollments will receive a 20% tuition grant. To find out more, go to taft.edu mba.htm. Catch us next week for episode 18 when we talk with Shannon Hoagland, a Florida-based solo attorney who practices complex commercial real estate law, where we'll talk with her about some of her techniques for growing her practice. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.